Hello and welcome to Campus Beat. I'm Dinah Jansen. On February 28th, the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, that is the IPCC, a United Nations body tasked with educating global policymakers through regular assessments of the climate situation worldwide, released its most recent report on climate change. And the results appear rather grim as the report projects rising sea levels in addition to drought, heat, hunger, and higher intensity disasters causing dangerous and widespread disruption for the natural world as well as the billions of people inhabiting the planet. And with its focus on how climate change is impacting humans and the natural world, the IPCC report calls for immediate drastic action, including the need to protect over a third of the planet to ensure food and fresh water for future generations, and to ultimately prevent the worst-case scenarios through nothing less than transformational change on a global scale. And in this episode, we are chatting with several Queen's University scholars about the latest UN Climate Change Report. And in our first segment, we're very pleased to welcome Dr. Marcus Taylor, head of the Department of Global Development Studies here at Queen's University, and also a contributing author to the IPCC's Sixth Assessment Report. And we'll be talking with him right now about his work on this report in the area of maladaptation. Welcome, Marcus. Hi there, Diana. Very nice to be here. Thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure to have you, and thank you so much for your valuable time. Now, Marcus, to get things started, can you talk about the report itself and its global and multidisciplinary work? I, I understand it's a 3,500-page report as well. Who's involved in all of this research and in it, and its co-authorship? Yes, it is quite the mammoth report. What it attempts to do is synthesize the range of scholarship that's come out over the last six or so years around climate change impacts and potentially climate resilient development pathways moving ahead. So it has to basically trawl through all the scientific evidence uh, and find ways to sort of condense this down and get to the real bullet points. So yes, it's a mammoth report, it's really large. And this report, in contrast to previous ones, is much more emphasizing the integration of what we might call the natural sciences with social sciences, which has uh, brought extra complexity to analysis, but also created brought together two different cultures of analysis and suggested that somehow we managed, must manage to uh, find a way to integrate these together. Uh, so that has been part of this report. So one of the reasons it's got longer than previous reports, one, there is there's more evidence out there. There's more scholarship on these things. Mm -hmm. And secondly, they're not just looking at natural science. They're really trying to integrate a social science aspect to find out who is vulnerable to climate change impacts and why. So that's uh, one of the things that's changed with this report. Okay, so a, a lot more human geography, sociology, and more than we would have seen in the past. Exactly. And, and, and to, to be fair, this is a little overdue. A lot of the critiques of previous IPCC reports are that they were just too focused on the sort of technical impacts of climatic change upon ecosystems and so forth without understanding how those impacts are filtered through a social context, which really strongly impacts who is vulnerable who is rendered vulnerable, particularly why and to what degree. So finally, here we start to see this sort of uh, recognition that social scientists 
all the categories you just mentioned have a lot to say on how these impacts are uh, experienced and what kinds of differentiated pathways ahead we need for different contexts and different kinds of peoples affected in different ways. Okay. So that was the ambition of the report. And it is a very, very ambitious report uh, in and of itself. And it is very long. Right. Thank you. So in broad strokes, Marcus, what are some of the key problems and recommendations from this UN climate change report in which you are a contributing author? Right. Yes. So, I mean, the I think the overwhelming uh, message of the report, and, and to be clear, this is a very dry report. When you read and look at it, it is written in a way that sort of tries to reduce uh, a, a wide range of array of different kinds of evidence to sort of uh, the dry facts of the matter. And this is a very IPC styling. It, it, it makes for a difficult read, but if we sort of cut through the dryness of it, it really emphasizes once again, if there were any remaining doubt of just how severe climate change impacts will be, how many people are particularly vulnerable to them. And we're talking about half the Earth's population are estimated to be really vulnerable to what's going on, whether it is impacts in terms of climate shocks, the immediacy of the kind of uh, storms and rainfall changes and droughts, et cetera, that, and, and sea level rises, or the side in indirect impacts in terms of the sort of slow creep of climate change impacts upon food systems, agriculture, and the ensuing food insecurities that this will come uh, that this will um, unleash, and how these come together. So behind the very dry rhetoric is a real sort of uh, a real seething mass of evidence of just how drastic things are. And that leads to a particular sort of uh, outcome of this report to say that this decade, the 2020s, and the decisions that are made here are the ones that really, really count. So on the one hand, it seems to be quite uh, a difficult report, given the severity of things that it, it brings up. The impacts that are already going to happen are going to be huge. We're already seeing them, and and so that is that is a major aspect. But also, it makes it clear that we must act with determination in every single thing that we do moving ahead. Decisions we make now will put us on pathways which will be irreversible in the future. So you know that that's the other aspect that comes with this: the the, the absolute drastic need to make decisions now with this eye on what happens over the next two decades. Okay. Thank you so much. And now with your own contributions focused on this concept of maladaptation, yeah. I'd like to move into some of your own uh, research expertise, if we might. Uh, what is this concept of maladaptation for the benefit of our non-specialist listeners? And, and what are its impacts, particularly the impacts on marginal sections of the global population? Yes. So um, for, for quite a while now, we've thought about how as societies we might adapt to climate change. How do we make changes 
to both shelter us and to mediate the the impacts of, of climate change across you know many zones and sectors. And so there's been a real rush. And if you if we if we look back at the COP 26 meetings at Glasgow that occurred just at the close of last year, you know, there was a real emphasis on mobilizing finance, international finance, both public and private, to pursue adaptation actions. Uh, and this is sort of, sort of to, to create changes in both physical and social infrastructure to help protect people and make them more able to cope with the impacts of climate change. So, but what has been recognized, however, is that adaptation up to this point has tended to be uh, very broad strokes and missing some of the ways that different groups of people are differently vulnerable to climate change. And in particular, it is noted that there, are, and I was part of an earlier report uh, commissioned by um, Swedish uh, development agency on this, that they wanted to know what is the state of adaptation um, programming. And myself with a group of about 20 authors kind of showed how many uh, projects that were done in the name of adaptation had very differentiated impacts upon their recipients. And sometimes they even increased the vulnerability of some to climate change impacts, even as the overall intent was to reduce vulnerability. And this was because they did not really look closely how, how things such as socioeconomic inequality, gender inequalities, questions of race and racialization, splintered populations that allowed some to be in a better place to take advantage of these adaptation programs, and sometimes meant that there were changes that impacted negatively some of these populations, even though in the stated terms of adaptation programs, they're the ones that they most wanted to, to help. So from my own research, I, I, I can give an example. Here. Please do. Uh, please do. I, I, I work in, in rural South India. And I've been over the last six or seven years been looking at various climate change adaptation programs, which have uh, focused on uh, um, introducing new technologies and new infrastructures on a sort of village level in, in, a, in a region which uh, so many people still defend on farming agriculture, which is, of course, acutely vulnerable to climate change impacts. And, you know, uh, Behind all the, the the dry rhetoric of the IPCC report, you know, it, it's it's a shame in a way that it abstracts away from some of the very real lived experiences of climate change. Some of the farmers that I've interviewed over the last decade, you know, talk of how that they're always used to dealing with climate um, erraticness, and they 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 know that from one year to the next, you know, weather changes, seasons change, the monsoons will be there or they will be not. But they say that over the last decade, they have no idea that the old methods of knowing that weather is uncertain have fallen apart. It has become so unpredictable that they find huge problem coping and they get into questions of debt and falling out of agriculture and things go 
can go very wrong. So in view of this, there's been a lot of programming, a lot of financing from both the Indian government and international donors towards, all right, let's build climate resilience. So uh, one of the projects I studied, and I, I tend to look at projects sort of about sort of four to five years after they sort of initiated. So, and particularly once the implementing authorities have, have left town, as it were, then people will speak freely. And to see, you know, what were the intended impacts of a program and what were the actual impacts, many of which were unintended. So I looked at one particular village, which was meant to be set up as a model climate resilient village that other villagers could emulate in terms of the introduction of new technologies. And it was really interesting to, to, to find that despite investment, a lot of money. Uh, the benefits of these new technologies, new forms of rainwater harvesting, new infrastructures to channel water in the village to make it more amenable, more usable and less of it wasted, uh, new kinds of climate resilient crops, which were, you know, different kinds of seeds that were meant to function better under climate change scenarios, and also a lot of subsidies for farmers to promote agroforestry, which is a really great thing where you, you mix the plant of trees that will bear fruit and then underneath them you plant crops and the shade from the trees helps the crops and the crops tide you over till the trees are ready to bear fruit and so forth it's great but what we found is in this village that the benefits of this were really unevenly distributed and preponderantly fell upon those members of the village that already were relatively privileged that had significant areas of land that had significant connections to local uh, implementing agencies and that were able to invest in further technologies to maximize the impacts of this public program. And uh, to, be, to be put blunt about it, they really cleaned up. <laughs> Whereas your average or, as it were, perhaps land scarce uh, uh, and relatively marginal household in this village either had very minimal impacts of this project or even found that they were actually um, negatively impacted. One specific example, the program helped some farmers build new uh, ponds to trap rainwater in. Wonderful and very good. What they didn't consider when building these ponds is on whose land these ponds were. And of course, those farmers with more land had bigger ponds. And then they started selling the water to farmers that weren't uh, perhaps able to create these ponds at the cost of one third of your crop. So this intervention, very well intended, no question about that but didn't consider socioeconomic inequalities within the village, absolutely had differentiated impacts in which some people did extremely well and some people did either not so well or found themselves in a position where they were more dependent on people in the village that uh, hold power over them. So this would be an example of what we call maladaptation, an adaptation program which had unintended impacts that perhaps even increased the vulnerability of some parts of that population. So part of what this report from the IPCC does is say not all adaptation needs to be, it can be, uh, sorry, let me try that again. Not all forms of adaptation are right. That if we do not actually consider 
And this is where the social scientists need to come in, how adaptation uh, impacts different sectors of the population differently, then we could actually do things which in some ways cause more harm than good. And this has not been well acknowledged within the IPCC previously. And I'm very happy to say that it's now on the on the table and it's being talked about, which can only be a good thing. Okay, well, thank you very much for fleshing this concept out for us and how it has uh, worked or rather not worked in practice. So appreciate that. And now, if we can, Marcus, let's hear a little bit more about your direct contributions to this IPCC report and, and what insights it offers regarding adaptation in a changing climate as a guide for development planning. Sure. So uh, my my contributions is to work with uh, the lead authors of Chapter 18, Climate Resilient Development Pathways, and in particular um, to provide certain uh, written examples uh, of the kinds of things I'm talking about. And so, you know, I provided, and, and, and this is one of these processes, it's kind of amusing, you know, you write a lot of material about different case studies that you've looked at and so forth, and you give it to them. And then you see the final product and what you what you gave has been distilled into a single sentence. And you understand that it's got to be like that, that, that this is the sort of a, a thing. But you, you also see where, where some of the points you're making have been um, taken by the lead authors and built into the greater framework. So, so this, this chapter now really looks at this question of maladaptation and says, you know, we need to make sure that the that, that climate resilient development pathways are resilient for everyone, that we need to be reflexive. And, and to be clear, one of the things that I like about this chapter, the way the lead authors took the information that us uh, contributing authors are giving them was that they don't pretend that these are easy things to resolve, that somehow you can just say, well, all right, let's make everything equitable and proceed. There's re it's really difficult to, to know what the impact of these interventions will be. And so the thing that they emphasize is that it needs to be greater reflexivity about this. And this is one of the things that we see a lot with a lot of adaptation programming, which this chapter tries to, to, to push back on, is that a lot of adaptation, a lot of climate change policy in general is very technical. And it says, right, you know, climate change impacts this way. Therefore, we need to make these kind of technical changes on the ground to, to, to uh, face it off. This report says, hold on, there's a whole lot of social and cultural context which needs to be brought in that we need to be reflexive about. So when we're thinking about adapting, whose values are we adapting from? Who are we speaking to? Who, who has the voice about what these projects should aim towards? And how do we get different voices involved, et cetera? There, there is absolutely no easy answers to this. But the very fact that, the, that this chapter report is saying we need to be reflexive about this, we need to talk about this, we can't just pretend it's an uncomfortable thing that no one talks around. Believe me, I've looked at so many development projects that just do that. They say, well, let's just focus on the technical aspects because those social dynamics are really, really complicated and they're really messy. So let's just pretend they don't exist. But once you pretend they don't exist, that's when you start going down these paths blindfolded and you can end up making a real mess. So, so I like the fact that this, this report does that. I really like the fact that this chapter and the report in general suggests that 
adaptation questions need to be bundled in with what we call mitigation questions. So how do we reduce emissions needs to be considered in the same breath as how we adapt to climate change. And before these two things were really sort of separated out, there was adaptation and we adapt this way. And then there was mitigation, how we lower our emissions on a completely different thing. And, and it was a kind of false separation. Now they're sort of talking about, all right, a climate resilient development pathway needs to think about how these two play into each other. And again, it's very complicated and it's very context specific, but this chapter really starts to set uh, a, a sort of high level messaging that we need to do these things, that we need to bring the social scientists into discussion, we need to look at the social dynamics of this, that we need to consider adaptation and mitigation together, we need to understand how power and inequality, this is the first IPCC report to ever mention colonialism, right? The history and legacies of the past are actually for the first time being formally acknowledged, that's a big step forward, it makes analysis more complicated and hard, and it was already complicated and hard, but there's an acknowledgement if we don't actually be reflexive about these kind of things, then things will not go well. It will, you know, we, programming will not reach its objectives. So this is a big step forward. And then it allows, I believe, uh, academics, uh, practitioners, organizations to create a sort of uh, better uh, approach to dealing with climate resilience, dealing with these programs, it empowers those that have been sort of saying these kind of things for a while, but the mainstream has gone, no, let's just keep it technical. We don't want to get into the messiness of politics. No, it, this says, all right, climate change is political and we need to actually deal with that. So this is a sea change from the part of the report that I was involved in um, that uh, I think is quite positive. Okay. And now I've got to ask Marcus, Given that this IPCC report is meant to educate and inform policymakers on a global scale, what do you hope, and conversely to that, what do you think the policymakers are going to do from this point? Uh, <laughs> Do we have all day? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good question. I honestly wish I could say with any confidence what is going to happen. I mean, the first thing, uh, here is that this report provides greater ammunition, if it was needed, but clearly it kind of was, to say that now is really the moment, that what happens over the next eight years is going to be really important. Now, you know, what happened, so this, this report is particularly about climate change adaptation, and one of the important things, it's very timely because the COP26 uh, accords have suggested the countries and organizations are going to push so much more money into adaptation. So, and we've seen lots of pledges. Of course, seeing pledges is not quite the same as seeing cash, but notwithstanding that, um, there is going to be a lot more money pushed into adaptation. And, and you know, there's been a number of people and groups I've been involved with who are quite worried that this is going to actually there'll be a, a, what's called an adaptation apartheid. The adaptation will happen in ways that actually reinforce existing social inequalities. So it's really timely that this document says, hold on, we need to make sure the adaptation helps lead to transformation that is equitable and just, and we need to take that seriously. We don't just give it lip service. We need to actually think tangibly about what that means. Mm -hmm. Of course, policymakers 
can interpret this in various ways. But hopefully some of the guidance in chapters like chapter 18, but others as well, really helps narrow the range of interpretation and helps push them to say, okay, no, actually we need to talk about historical injustice and we need to talk about power relations and we need to be reflexive of our own power within a policymaking world and about whose interests we're acting in. So that's the hope. But of course, uh, you know, we will have to have to see what uh, what gets distilled. And there's also been a bit of sort of media pushback or perhaps not media, but certainly some pushback that, that this report is less scientific because it brings in this kind of human social dimension. And I think that that's very problematic if that and, and we need to stop that because the idea that there's some kind of value neutral way of dealing with climate change sort of overlooks the fact that climate change itself is like a lever for opening up historical injustices. Those that are the most vulnerable are those that at least to cause the problem and yet already suffering from socioeconomic inequality and marginality. So yeah, climate change is political and we just have to get along with that. So yeah. Absolutely. All right. Thank you very much for the critical insights. Now, before we wrap today, uh, Marcus, did you want to talk a little bit about the work being done here at Queen's University or anything else to add? For sure. So Queen's, you know, finds itself at a point where um, it's, it's starting to, to sort of project outwards a really important uh, engagement with things like the Sustainable Development Goals. Mm -hmm. Our principle has been very important about pushing this. One of the things that's that's coming onto the agenda, and I mean this very literally, I, we're, we're here talking on Friday afternoon, it's coming onto the Board of Trustees this very evening to be voted on, is the recommendations about how Queen's investments in terms of its endowments and other funds uh, deal with climate change. And uh, I'm not sure whether you're aware, but there's been a lot of mobilization from student groups such as QBAC and concerned uh, faculty and staff that Queen's has not been taken sustainability and climate change uh, very seriously in the way it invests its money. Uh, particularly, there have been uh, you know, requests for Queen's to move out of fossil fuels and so forth. So I'm, on one hand, I'm happy to say that finally, after seven years of pushing, there is a set of recommendations that are probably going to be passed through this evening, albeit uh, without any discussion or debate, because people can't turn up to board of trustees and have their say. Um, but um, it's going to sort of try to uh, uh, ensure that the Queen's portfolio of investments uh, has a climate policy, that Queen's aims to have its carbon footprint from its investments at 25% below the global average uh, investment portfolio. So on the one hand, this is a very good thing that's going on. Mm -hmm. On the flip side of it, we're starting from a very low base. There is a reason that Queen's portfolio is presently above the global average in terms of its carbon intensity. And that's because after seven years, no one has done anything despite repeated uh, requests to make a, a sustainable portfolio. I'd also note that these commitments seem a fair bit less than what the University of Toronto and the University of McGill as two comparators have done. The University of Toronto has set absolute targets uh, to get become Paris aligned, that is aligned with the Paris Agreement on, on reducing emissions. And Queens has sidestepped that kind of commitment. Uh, 
It is also uh, projected to divest from fossil fuels within, uh, I believe, two years. Um, oh, actually, 18 months for the University of Toronto. And Queen's has definitely not made that. So it seems to come at a time when the IPCC is saying we need drastic, really transformative action. And yet we still see a hesitancy to really embody what that means. And I understand fiscal prudence and I understand fiduciary duty. I also understand that the IPCC says if we don't act, we are doomed. So I just thought to throw that in there as it's happening this very evening and uh, it hasn't been allowed to be something with much debate around it. Okay, well, thank you very much for those comments as well. Folks, we've been chatting with Professor Marcus Taylor of the Department of Global Development Studies and a contributing author to the UN IPCC's latest climate change report issued on February 28th. Thank you very much, Marcus, for joining us, sharing so many of your insights, certainly your expertise expertise. Uh, we really do appreciate your time. Well, thank you so much for having me. Welcome back to Campus Beat. Coming up in our next segment, we're chatting with Ed Struzik, fellow at the Queen's Institute for Energy and Environmental Policy in the School of Policy Studies here at Queen's University, and also the 2022 Yaroslavsky Fellow at the University of Waterloo about the UN's IPCC climate change report findings about wildfires, a phenomenon identified as a top threat to Canada. Welcome to CFRC's Campus Beat, Ed. Thanks for having me on. Wonderful. Uh, thank you very much for your time. So, Ed, a lot of ground was covered in this 3,500-page report from the UN's IPCC. What did the report say specifically about recent wildfire conditions in Canada, let alone best practices for remediation at, at the national, let alone global scale? Well, we're going to see a lot more fire than we have you know, which is to some people probably shocking because as everybody knows, since about 2003, when there was mass evacuations in British Columbia, we've seen this kind of uh, evacuations, uh, major catastrophic fires uh, ramp up. And uh, I think uh, the IPCC report points out that probably we're going to see a doubling of wildfire by the end of the century. And I've heard uh, others suggest that it could even be a tripling. Uh, so it's pretty sobering, uh, but we've had this message before. Uh, the problem is, is that we really haven't uh, done much to prepare ourselves for it. Mm -hmm. And were there anything in the report's findings that you found particularly surprising, or, or is this old news for you? You know, it tr truly is old news. Uh, people have been talking about this, fire scientists have been talking about this since the 1990s, early 1990s. Uh, when they first suggested that uh, we're going to see a ramping up of fire activity in Canada. Uh, and the Canadian government's response to that uh, report uh, was to essentially eviscerate the Canadian Forest Service wildfire program. I mean, the Canadian Forest Service at one time had uh, 2,200 people working for it. They have uh, less than 1,000 working for them now. And there's probably only about a dozen or so wildfire scientists uh, there, you know, Portugal, Spain have way more people working in fire science than we do here in Canada. And of course, they're much smaller countries. 
And and the air in the countries are smaller than some of the forest areas impacted by wildfires. At that, it's absolutely true. And you know, our forest, the boreal forest, is a it's a kind of forest that was born to burn. It really needs fire to regenerate. Uh, the thing is, is that we've kind of set it up uh, for. Uh, bigger fires uh, that are unmanageable as opposed to smaller, more beneficial fires that help regenerate the forest. So with less water, higher temperatures, more lightning uh, being forecasted in the future and a lot more people on the ground and in harm's way, uh, we're heading for some serious trouble. Mm -hmm. And now, Ed, what do the policymakers in Canada, let alone globally, need to do in your view? What should they really draw upon from this report and in what ways should they act? Well, I think it's got to be a national strategy that is put into play that involves the provinces, the municipalities, indigenous communities, and the business community, because everybody is in harm's way in this case, and everybody needs to be on deck uh, with the same strategy and the same message or same strategies, I should say. Uh, you know, just an example, 40% of the evacuations in Canada occur uh, among Indigenous communities, First Nations communities, and they represent only 4% of the population. That's really unacceptable. Uh, we've got to empower those communities which have don't have the resources to deal with fire to be better be better able to handle it, manage it in the future. We're just not doing this. We're doing the same old things such as just evacuating people for four or five weeks and putting up in a cheap hotel in Winnipeg or Edmonton and then uh, wait till the fire goes out. This is not uh, the way people should be living. So I think really we really have to have a number of things in play. One thing that I've I, I've advocated is if we do have this national policy, we've got to have kind of financial incentives to uh, allow many of these small forested communities, and we have a lot of them, especially in Western Canada and Northern Ontario and Quebec, uh, to be able to deal with fire. They don't have the tax base to uh, prepare themselves, you know, to hire firefighters, to thin the forest. Um, it's, a, it, it's a task that really requires uh, outside resources, and we're just not enabling them or empowering those communities to be able to deal with the situation that they're facing now and in the future. Okay, thank you very much. Anything else to add before we close today, Ed? Well, I'm just, I've just written a book for McGill Queen's University Press uh, about the past and future history of fire. And one of the things that I think will startle people is that just how much fire we had in Canada uh, from around 1900 to the 1930s. Um, and it's astonishing. Many communities burned down back in those days, uh, dozens of them uh, just flattened by fire. Uh, we don't read this in the history books, but you know that was a time when the climate wasn't as hot, wasn't as uh, dry as it is now. So if we're returning to that period, we're going to have we're, we're going to face some serious problems down the road. And what's your prognosis? I think that we're going to see fires burn bigger, hotter, and in shorter intervals. And I think that we're going to see more and more communities uh, get in harm's way, a lot more evacuations down the road, unless we have a national, we implement a national strategy uh, that is well-funded and needs to be able to deal with the situation. 
And do you think that this will, this national committee will be struck to work on these particular projects? Well, I know the Canadian Forest Service has got a blueprint to suggest, you know, that we do something like that. Uh, Nobody in the federal government has uh, really taken on uh, that. I think what we're probably going to see is more of the same situations that we've seen in Slave Lake, Fort McMurray, and British Columbia for the, you know, three to the last uh, five years. Uh, until something really, really bad happens. I mean, Fort McMurray, we, we dodged a bullet there. That could have ended up much more disastrously than it did. And I'm afraid that's probably what's going to have to happen before we get the federal government, the provincial governments and the municipalities all on board to uh, deal with the situation. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Folks, we've been chatting with Ed Struzik, fellow at the School of Policy Studies here at Queen's University and 2022 Yaroslavsky fellow at the University. University of Waterloo about the UN's IPCC climate change report findings regarding wildfires in the Canadian context. Thank you for joining us, Ed. Thank you. And welcome back to Campus Beat. We hope you've enjoyed our chats with Dr. Marcus Taylor and Ed Struzik about the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change Report, released on February 28th. And in our next segment, Distinguished University Professor John Small from the Department of Biology joins us once again here in the virtual studio, this time to speak about the ecological and environmental issues covered in the report, including the issues of flooding and water quality. Welcome back to Campus Beat, John. Oh, happy to be back. It's a real pleasure. Uh, so tell us about what the IPCC Climate Change Report says first about flooding and also water quality. Well, I think this, you know, we've seen several IPCC reports going back in time. And I think the general characteristic of this one is that it's more dire, uh, it's more stark, <laughs> and it's again emphasizing urgency. Uh, maybe not yet hopeless, <laughs> but urgency. And it does focus to, to a significant effect on environmental, ecological, what I would refer to as ecological issues. Uh, and this includes things like flooding, which is one of the more obvious things people are seeing uh, with climate warming. Uh, ocean waters are increasing in uh, um, water levels are rising from the ocean. This is based on for two main reasons. One is what we say land-based ice. It's not the, the, the sea ice melting because that that's all in equilibrium. But if you have ice on, for example, Greenland or Iceland or Antarctica, these large glaciers, these large ice sheets that are on land, if they start melting, that's extra water going into the ocean and that's increasing uh, the ocean levels. Secondly, just warmer water, warmer is expanding. So a significant part of that, simply just warmer waters are expanding. Well, if you increase uh, sea levels, you're making places that are near the sea far more susceptible to inundation of marine waters. And this can happen with hurricanes or other types of meteorological events, or you know, just um, not even that strong an event can often uh, cause more damage and, and so forth. And you know, that is a very, very major issue. Now, uh, places like North America, it's a, a costly issue. In some places, and this report emphasizes, I would call issues of social justice, this report also emphasizes that the places that are being affected by many of these ecological effects are the least able to deal with them and had the least cause, at least of uh, least contribution to greenhouse gases. So there is a strong social 
injustice component to climate change. This includes large parts of Africa, certainly the island nations and the Indian Ocean and Pacific. Some of these island nations, which are individual countries, can disappear or almost disappear just because they're so low to the water level. Uh, and that's just certainly one aspect that this emphasizes. Uh, and and it's, you know, it's certainly one that is more obvious to people. Uh, there are, of course, many, many other things that are happening with greenhouse gas emissions. Um, we stick with water, which is sort of my specialty, I guess. Yeah, just sticking with the oceans. We keep talking about warming of oceans, and that's definitely changing where fish are, where habitat is, uh, where fish habitat, like kelp beds, are disappearing. They talk about how the kelp beds are, are disappearing in some areas. Some of that could be due, some of it's due to warming for sure. There's another nefarious side of greenhouse gas emissions in the ocean, and it's called ocean acidification. And, oh. and it's minor. If you add, a, the thing is that carbon dioxide in water forms a weak acid. You can show this easily. If you take a glass of water and you, you just pour in distilled water and you very quickly take the pH, it should be seven, neutral. That's neutral pH. If you take a straw and you blow into it, that's CO2 is what we exhale, of course. Mm -hmm. And you put that into your distilled water. You take the pH again, it would be something like 5.8, 5.6. It's acidified. It's making a weak acid, carbonic acid. Because of the high concentrations of CO2 in the atmosphere, we now know the ocean is very slightly acidified. And it's very slight, but it's enough to affect many ocean organisms, things like corals or things that have lots of, well, we have calcium carbonate like shells. Mm -hmm. Well, this is affecting food webs all over the place, including our food webs, a large proportion, especially in relatively less industrially developed nations. A large part of the protein comes from the ocean in the form of fish and seafood. Of mm -hmm. course, that will be affecting that. And that's sort of happening under the radar very slowly. So it just shows you uh, these are tremendous costs, uh, costs that are happening. And, you know, other ecosystems are, it's either too much water or too little water. You know, it's, it's changing the distribution of water and well, areas are drying up. Um, you know, they talk about the heartland of Canada that, you know, where a lot of our agriculture is, where it doesn't take much more temperature, much more evaporation to dry out that land where once was, you know, wheat fields is now drought. And that's, you know, billions of dollars in costs. So all these things are happening uh, and, um, and they're happening much faster than even uh, the earlier reports suggested. Um, you know, forest fires is another classic I'm an ecologist, so forest fires are important also for water quality. Uh, uh, but um, forest fires are increasing and the cost, I mean, let's talk, you know, start again, why do people talk about what's the cost of fixing climate change? What's the cost of not fixing it? Uh, you know, it's now about a billion dollars a year in Canada of the, you know, because of forest fires. Uh, so that is, these are all very, very serious and very costly issues. And that are uh, happening, all these things are happening as predicted by scientists, uh, and is happening even faster than even the scientists were predicting. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's a very, very serious situation. Uh, and part of the report is talking about, talk, starting to talk about solutions. The next report coming out will be more specific, I think, on, on those issues. But it talks about getting ready. It's too late. You know, we, we had all our time to stop this problem. Now it's a question of how bad will it be? That's the stage we're at. So now we also, and a good part of this report's on adaptation, getting getting ready. You know, we're not adapted. Never mind, we didn't solve the, you know, didn't deal with the problem. But now it's coming, and we're not ready to deal with the problem. That's where they talk about adaptation. So, um, how will they? Uh, you know, are, do we have to change what crops we grow? Uh, and they also talk about maladaptation. By maladaptation, 
don't look at short-term solutions. Like maybe, maybe you're running out of water, for example, for your agriculture. So you're going to dig deeper wells and pull out more of the groundwater. Well, that might help for a few years, but then you're going to deplete the groundwater. So those are short-term solutions. So they warn against what's common in human history, finding solutions that are short-term, but very bad in the long-term. So there's lots of warnings of what they refer to as maladaptations uh, also in the report. Okay, thank you very much. And yes, we did speak with Marcus Taylor specifically about the problem of maladaptation oh, too earlier in this episode. Uh, so a lot, a lot of uh, a lot of considerations to take in in terms of how adaptations are going to be put in place to responsibly ensure that uh, moving forward the solutions in place. Uh, will have their intended effects, right. not only for the environment itself, but the people. Okay, so now, John, as a scientist, what do you think the most difficult challenges are there for remediation, let alone, if possible, reversal of the impacts of climate change on water quality and flooding? Well, I, I think I think it's, it's, it's probably too late to, to I mean, it's because carbon dioxide, in some case, methane, methane has a long say, life in the atmosphere, uh, we're going to see these effects. And it's now it's a question of you know, stopping as much greenhouse gases for the long term. And we're talking about children, grandchildren kind of effects uh, going forward. Um, so people, so when it comes to, uh, well, it comes to flooding, flooding, for example, and that includes episodic weather, even in, in never mind the ocean, but you know, I don't know about your backyard, but my backyard's been getting more and more flooded each each year with uh, with these massive uh, rainstorms. Sometimes we get the you know almost all the entire rain that we used to get in a month. We sometimes get in like twenty four hours. Uh, we're not prepared for that, you know. And there's there's artificial ways to try and deal with that with better drainage systems, let's say. Uh, and, you know, these are going to be costly things. Putting in more storm sewers and stuff like that. These are these have other costs associated with. There's also and the, and the report brings this up sort of natural emphasizing natural solutions. Wetlands is a classic, both on marine, on marine shores, but also in, in inland on freshwater places like Kingston. Uh, maintaining wetlands, many people see wetlands, these swampy areas as just wasted land or maybe stuff that should be taken away. But wetlands are critically important ecologically for biodiversity. It's an incredible number of animals and plants thrive in these wetlands, it's habitat for these wetlands. But wetlands also often act as a sponge. Uh, they will, um, they will uh, absorb a lot of this excess water. And in fact, in some place even clean it. They have sort of, a, we sometimes call wetlands the kidneys of the planet, just like our kidneys, they're filtering the water. So um, dealing with, just using one example, wetlands, preserving wetlands, encouraging wetlands. And there's also artificial wetlands. Now we've cut, some, we've destroyed so many wetlands. There's this whole developing industry of reconstructing wetlands now. Um, so that's like one example of many that would be sort of considered a natural solution to a problem we've created. Okay, thank you so much. And now, John, what about the so-called snooze button, a historic, <laughs> historically placed on action against climate change at national and international levels? In really basic terms, you know, channeling uh, that movie, uh, The Day After Tomorrow, if you will, <laughs> does it really all boil down to the economy? Well, a lot of people see it as such. And, and to me, that's, I've always found that a very, very odd comparison. And I get that a lot, mm -hmm. you know, like, well, how much is this going to cost? You know, it is the wrong question. 
It's not how much is it going to cost to fix it. It's how much is it going to cost not to fix it. And this report is full of numbers like that, that this is very, very expensive. And I use that analogy. We're sort of sleepwalking to disaster. And, uh, you know, the alarms keep coming uh, with these different reports. And the, the, the alarm is louder and louder each time it has been for 20-something years. And yet we seem quite content to hit the snooze and go back to sleep and you know, just hope it goes away. And uh, every time we do that, it's more expensive and more difficult to deal with the problem. So that is something we really have to deal with. And it is getting more expensive and the numbers are already showing up. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we had listened to science earlier, uh, we'd be in a much better situation. And I think in some ways, uh, if we, uh, I'm always looking for, is there anything positive in all this? You know, I think one positive is, was the power of science. Um, if you look, you know, things are written down. It's not just hearsay. You can look at the various reports going back in time. They got stronger and stronger as they went. This is how science proceeds. You get more data, you have more confidence. And you can see, despite all the naysayers, despite all that, what was the, these was the, scientists were correct. Simple as that. Scientists were right. Uh, and wishful thinking of naysayers has had no place here. Where, where are they now? <laughs> I mean, here's the data. You know? mm-hmm. Here's the data of what the temperature is doing, what, what's happening. Scientific predictions are happening before our eyes. Uh, and so I think in a positive sense, it shows the power of science. And now we just have to start listening to science. Science has become very developed and uh, very reliable in many ways. It starts off rougher because we need data, but it, it takes these data. You know, Many scientists like myself going back, I've been talking about climate change for 30 years as this, you know, this massive problem. Uh, you know, we refer to as, oh, you're just fear mongering. Well, we, w- we were optimistic, if you look now. We were optimistic. It's worse than we said it was going to be. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there is something to say that, you know, when it comes to science, when it comes to medicine or environmental issues, uh, scientists in general are, are very serious people and they're trying to get the right answers. And here is going to be, a, you know, if anyone wants to look at it, here's been a, 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 you know, a massive environmental problem where science, you can see the history the development of the science and how it developed and how it was correct. Now, with the knowledge that this uh, latest UN climate change report not only mobilizes the hard science, but also the social science uh, to a greater degree than these reports ever have before. What impact on structural and attitudinal change amongst policymakers do you hope and perhaps anticipate this report will actually have in Canada, let alone globally? Yes, it's going much more towards policy now. The early reports were, were very scientific. And in fact, one there was one rep- report released, uh, I guess it was in fall, and there's another one coming, I think, in April, uh, or a little later. Uh, the, first, the That was more like the the. Be- the science, science, hard science kind of report. And it, and I think that's the way to look at it. There's the hard science, which is the foundation that we can actually say what the issue is. And then we have to deal with the policy issues and how to deal with this. It begins in social sciences, brings in humanities. Of course, this report also brings in indigenous knowledge as, an, as a key component. All that's required uh, to get uh, to get a cohesive policy forward. So this one is, is, is definitely looking at issues of social justice and um, and issues like that, but still based fundamentally, ha- you have to establish the problem, and that primarily is a science issue. Uh, and now it's becoming uh, more of a, as you said, social sciences, humanity. Everything's involved in the report now. You know, it's a, it's become a far, far broader, uh, far broader kind of kind of analysis, mm-hmm. which is we're going to need because uh, you know, and you say, well, that gets it very complicated. Well. Complex problems need complex solutions. And for complex solutions, you need lots of different skills 
and skill sets to deal with it. Mm-hmm. You're not going to be able to do that just with <laughs> physicists or just with biologists or just uh, you know with an ecologist or a lake biologist like me. And that's why this has hundreds of authors and is this report, I think, was 3,700 single space pages. <laughs> so, you know, we're talking about a significant, it took me over an hour just to read the executive summary. Oh, gosh. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. So, f- further to that, though, do you think that the change makers are actually going to uh, take action here? Well, I can say I certainly hope so, but I'm not, I hope it's, uh, I think there is there are positive signs, though promises are cheap. Um, even government, government politicians, policymakers, even parties, political parties, who were, so let's say, less than enthusiastic about the science, have now realized they have to acknowledge the science. It's mm-hmm. it's, it's 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 no longer it's politically a dead end for them, because the people <laughs> believe it. You know? So so I mean, there's that positive side that uh, there's talk across a large swath of the political spectrum that something has to be done. Uh, different places have different uh, different policies to get to that goal. Um, I think a lot of people have realized that if you're going to make pollution free, people will pollute. Uh, so, I mean, we learned that with acid rain as well. Mm-hmm. So I think that's also we're seeing sort of a change in attitudes and different political stripes about that. Uh, but, you know, we're, this is dire and we're running out of time. We should have been doing this 30 years ago. And so it is pretty dire. Uh, and it's very easy to make promises. Uh, you know, if, if everyone did what they promised, I feel far more, uh, far more optimistic. But the simple reality is that a lot of promises have been made in the past and haven't been met. You can go for the Kyoto Protocol, but start making a list. Uh, we have the Paris Agreement. No one seems to, very few, no, I shouldn't say no one, but very few seem to be on track to reach their Paris targets. And everyone's talking about, you know, decades in advance, usually several political four-year cycles in advance. So mm-hmm. won't be there, they won't be around when, you know, well, we didn't make the target. So I think uh, what I emphasize to people is that we all have to get involved. And one way to get involved in a democracy is we have a vote. Make sure when it's time to vote, make sure you make sure your politicians know what you think is important and that this is critically important. And they, we're expecting them to take concrete action. Mm-hmm. Uh, not promises and so uh, that's i think where we're where we're heading but uh it, it's very late it's very very late but it's not hopeless but very very late all right um john anything else to add before we wrap up our segment today yeah i think that probably covers the main points yeah. All right. Well, thank you very much, folks. We've been chatting with distinguished university professor John Small of the Department of Biology about the recent IPCC climate change report and its findings, especially those related to flooding and water quality. Thanks so much, John, for joining us once again here on Campus Speed on CFRC. My Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples and brought to you by the generous support of the Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science.